0: If you were to describe American culture or Americana in one to two sentences, what would you describe it
1: as? Or what does it mean to you? Um, Violins, Andy Warhol, chainsaw. Veiled inclusive
2: possibility.
0: I like that. That's good. I like that a lot. Welcome back to Slice of Americana. I'm your host, Jacob Alloy. So, growing up, I loved watching old-school movie musicals. I was such a fan to the point that I even attended a performing arts high school and have worked in the theater industry for the past four years, despite pursuing a degree in history. (laughs) And in the development of this show, one topic that I was always drawn to is American theater, culture, and history. How it has developed and taken on a lifeblood all its own. So this episode, we are taking a look at American theater, its origins, its present connection to mainstream pop culture, and where it's going in the next five years. I'm joined today by two guests, college professor and professional dramaturg Dr. Jeff Turner, and acting teacher and director Kyle Lewis. This episode is titled, Rainbow High, The American Theater Experience. Now, normally with our episodes, we break them down into parts or stories. But in the spirit of talking about American theater, this episode will be broken up into two acts with a brief intermission. The first act will be starring Dr. Jeff Turner of Hamlin University.
1: Okay, so my name is Jeff Turner, and I am a professor of of theater arts at Hamlin University. And I teach predominantly theater history, theater Theory, um, performance theory, um, film studies, um, dramatic texts, dramaturgy, stuff like that. Direct a play um, every year um, in the production season. And there you go. So
0: when you started out in theater, what was the reason that you got into it? Is there like an origin story or is it just something that's always been present in your life?
1: You know, not really an origin story. I think my love for film particularly in the sixties and seventies, made me really interested in kind of dramatic storytelling. Um, I didn't grow up with a lot of theater in my life. Um, my family didn't go to the theater. I don't think I saw a professional theater company until I was in my mid to late teens. Um, but I was enraptured with cinema and movies and theater was, <coughs> theater was the, the easiest way to kind of maneuver in that direction. So I got involved in high school, um, got involved in college, and at some point in college, as an English major, I decided that I really wanted to pursue um, the study of theater. That I wanted to—I um, think I always really wanted to be an educator, but I really wanted to kind of feed my head, and theater was the way I wanted to feed my head. And then I got involved with some small theater companies and started a small theater company in Lexington, Kentucky, and then studied you know, at UCLA and studied here and there and worked with kids a lot and I did a lot of different things before finally I decided to kind of pursue the PhD at the University of Colorado. Um so an odd not maybe the, the ideal um origin story, but um yeah I think I think I saw a Rhodes company of a chorus line maybe in like nineteen seventy eight or seventy nine. That was my first professional theater. It was in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, So everything else was kind of not even amateur. It was just kind of like high school, you know, I mean, or reading the New York times and looking at all the ads for all the stuff that was going on or all the movies that would be um, adapted from theater and kind of wondering what it might be like to to live in LA or particularly live in New York and just have all that stuff at your fingertips, but only to be able to kind of access it um, remotely through newspapers and village voice and stuff like that. But the New York times Sunday section was kind of, Godlike like to me as a 16, 17-year-old Kentucky boy. So,
0: Jeff's personal background and experience is among one of the many reasons why I decided to sit down and discuss this topic with him. His non-traditional approach and background in dramatic storytelling makes him a key candidate to talk about theater's influences on wider American culture. And we'll get into that further down in the conversation, but first, let's get a little context about where American theater developed from. What do you think is the, what are the major touchstones in American theater? You know, in the development of it, in the history of it, um, where do you think a lot, like the main, like, here's, here's this thing that really changed things, if there are any, or if you think it's ever evolving?
1: You know, American theater was very much modeled after British theater. Um, and as we move into the 17th century, into the 18th century, you see um, British actors, actor managers that are traveling to the Caribbean, and traveling into the Americas to try to kind of stake their claim in this new, you know, this this new these new colonies. Um, uh, the Hallam family—I can't remember the dates—but Hallam family was one such um, group that actually kind of managed to be successful. But there were lots of of these kind of hustlers, um, movers and shakers, folks that are going to get on a boat and head over to the, the new world and, and see where if they can kind of make, stake their claim that maybe they're not able to do in England and London, which was so much more of a um, more com- competitive. So America basically kind of steals and...
0: It's clear that early American theater was based on British ideals of acting and how to perform on stage. It wasn't until the 19th century that American theater began to find a lifeblood all its own and even took into the 20th century for it to cement itself as an important part of the wider theater community. In fact, Dr. Turner notes that it isn't until after World War II that American playwrights truly begin to have an impact on the wider theater experience as well as the development
1: of the art form. You know, I mean, I think for me moving into the 1960s and some of the Experimentation, um, the kind of post-World War II theater, the theater of the absurd, um, that kind of stuff really changes the the um, the way things are moving. Uh, the introduction of Brecht and Brechtian ideas and and, and Brechtian style, uh, and and kind of a political theater, um, is another touchstone. And you got folks, particularly like Tony Kushner, that really kind of um, is, succeeds making that kind of political theater but that's never been as big in america as it is in england i think after world war ii and we start to see the center of global culture move away from france or london and kind of find itself in new york city um we really start to see that america begins to kind of uh, american cultural forms american dramaturgy american art um find art paintings um uh that it really is a, a shift in mid-century, mid-20th century um, from Europe to America as kind of the one of the centers of, of Western culture, um, New York City in particular. But I think once we get into the 20th century, particularly after World War II, a lot of those truths begin to break down. And there's a lot of kind of back and forth, a lot of sharing and a, a recognition that, that the American theater um, was perhaps more vital than any other Um, theater, particularly in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s.
0: That being said, Dr. Turner does note that early American theater was much more interested in creating spectacle, mounting big and elaborate productions to show off populist ideas and themes. It's this exact idea of American spectacle and grandioseness that, in my belief, leads to one of the greatest contributions American theater has had to the wider theater community, and that's the creation of the American musical. And kind of to go off of that, one of the biggest things to come out of or at least when talking to actors and when talking to people who study history uh, of theater, especially in America, one of the biggest things they think that has come out of America, obviously, is the American musical, the advent of the Great White Way, mm-hmm. um, which comes during which comes at the tail end of World War Two, right into this time period of America finding its own place in theater. Mm-hmm. Um do you agree with that do you agree with the idea that the american musical is kind of a a not wholly american but most certainly one of the greatest impacts that american americans have had on the wider theater culture
1: yeah yeah i mean i think um a case can be made And while
0: musical theater has certainly had an impact on American theater culture, Dr. Turner is quick to point out that it is not all glitz and glamour. That musical theater has a very dark history, and he doesn't sugarcoat it either.
1: The American musical theater is a kind of truly indigenous form um, that it emerged out of um, a lot of different styles in the 19th century um, most notably, for good and bad, um, minstrel shows and minstrelsy. Um,
0: for those of you who do not know what minstrelsy is, it is an archaic and racist form of American entertainment wherein a white performer would put blackface on and perform in racist sketches, sing racist songs, and do racist dances, all for the enjoyment of a white audience. It is an evil and disgusting form of entertainment and I am dedicated to bringing to you the entire story of American theater, no sugarcoating for good or ill.
1: And then later in the 19th century, minstrelsy was the first mainstream American form that allowed black entertainers to actually perform for white audiences.
0: Right, there's this, there's this thing that um, black entertainers would put on blackface to yep. do minstrel shows. Well, it is wild and it's repugnant. Dr. Turner says that there are two other major players in American musical theater. That is the voices, traditions, dances, and music of Black and African American voices, as well as Eastern European and Jewish immigrants, bringing in things to create musical stylings
1: like Tin Pan Alley. And you've got kind of Tin Pan Alley and you've got kind of African American um, musical styles and forms that are kind of colliding. And out of that kind of dynamic birth of immigrants and 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 Black Americans who, by and large, did not choose to live in America, I think that um, well, did not choose at all to live in America, but were brought over as slaves. Um, that the the core origins of the American musical theater are bound up in in those those kind of songs and song styles, and um, I don't have the the words for. Um, in musicology, sadly. I don't know all the, the fancy words when we're talking about musicology, but but certainly that's one thing that makes the American musical um, truly indigenous is the way it's written on, or if, if it is structured or, or constructed on top of the talents, um, the song craft, um, the choreography of, um, African-Americans and immigrant Americans, newly arrived immigrant Americans in the late um, 19th century, moving into the 20th century.
0: While it is important to note the racist history of musical theater in America, it is also good to note that the voices of black and African-American people, as well as Jewish people, immigrants who were treated poorly when they first came here and other marginalized communities have made American musical theater, wholly American. In wrapping up our conversation, in somewhat of an Act One finale, I talked to Dr. Turner about how much influence American theater and American musicals have on mass media and the wider pop culture of the nation. And Dr. Turner had somewhat of a complex answer. You see, he agrees that after World War II, that theater had a huge influence on pop culture and the direction in which Culture was shaped, especially in entertainment. Theater were the first people to talk about Vietnam. They were the first people to talk about LGBTQ plus issues. They were the movers and shakers of political movements. Yet he feels that that influence has declined over time. Well, perhaps with one notable exception.
1: I would argue for before Hamilton, it's you know I'm trying to think of of, of plays or theater that really is shaping kind of popular culture on a kind of larger scale and in the nineties and in the aughts and even in the first, you know, but until Hamilton, I think it was a lot more niche, right? I mean, you had the mm. musical theater kids, right? Right. The new, you know, they, they knew all the new musicals and would sing them all. And, and so Glee becomes kind of maybe one um pop culture, you know, Ryan Murphy is kind of the sparkly child of, of, of um, some musical theater artist out there somewhere, right? And the way he's been able to kind of um, revitalize and 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 think about how kind of a Broadway sensibility or camp or Broadway style can find its way into kind of um, a television program like Glee. Um, you know, you think about the stuff from the 1950s, Marlon Brando and and um, and uh, oh uh, the other one that died um, in the car crash um, um james dean and montgomery cliff and elizabeth taylor and method acting and arthur miller and tennessee williams and how those playwrights really i mean when i was growing coming of age in the 70s so about 20 years removed those playwrights and those plays um still had a real Powerful. They 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 managed to kind of shape and influence the culture, um, but it seems like Hamilton has been the only force of American theater that's managed to harness and pull from all these different kind. I mean, it it, it managed to get people talking about one thing for, for over you know for two plus years. I mean, still very popular. But there was a, from 2015 and from maybe 2017 or whatever. Um, I mean, it was just like at the center. Of American cultural discourse, it was everywhere. Yeah, wild, and great, but it's wild. And absolutely, I think that that was more that was more normative when I was like a teenager and in my twenties. Mm. Um, that plays and playwrights, um, directors and actors, um, they loomed a lot larger, and they seemed to to um, kind of shape the conversation around what theater is and how theater functions. Um, yeah, so that's some thoughts.
0: And with that, a simple line of, those are some thoughts. The curtain falls and the house lights come up for our intermission. Support for Slice of Americana comes from viewers just like you. Thank you. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't, to go check out our YouTube channel and subscribe there if you haven't, and also to go follow us on Instagram, at Slice of Americana. Hey everybody, welcome to your Broadway intermission moment for Rainbow High. So, Junior Mints, right? They are a favorite at concession stands across the nation. But did you know that they are the official candy of Broadway? In fact, their name is even tied to a Broadway show. You see, the creator of the candy, his name is James O. Welch, and he was a big fan of a specific Broadway show called Junior Miss. It is a Broadway production that was an adaptation of a bunch of short stories written by Sally Benson. And so when he invented his candy, he named his candy after the show, Junior Miss, Junior Mints, his favorite Broadway show, and now Broadway's favorite candy. So there is your intermission moment. Please sit back and get back to your seats because Act Two is about to begin. As the Entré plays and the curtain rises, we begin with our second act, a conversation with Kyle Lewis about where theater is and where it's going to go, the merit of American theater, and where it falters.
2: I'm Kyle Lewis. I'm the artistic director at Tuakam High School for the Arts. Um... I'm a member of Actors' Equity Association, I'm a member of Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, I've got an MFA in directing. Uh, um, I'm trying to think what else. Uh, I have run a Shakespeare company. Uh, I've stayed pretty busy in about 30 plus years of theatre.
0: Uh, just for the listener, I feel that Kyle's kind of selling himself short. Uh, Kyle's one of the uh, – so uh, people who don't know, uh, I used to actually go to – I go, went to the high school that, that uh, Kyle teaches at. And he is a, a real – just a real treat to have because he is an, a, just a deeply profound and interesting individual but also is so well-connected Um and he just he just knows what he's talking about, um, and he likes to say that he doesn't, but I think he does. Well, that's kind. Thank you. <laughs> of course. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So, kind of, is getting into this. Um, what's kind of the origin story? That's kind of the first thing that I'd like to get at. Kind of give a little personal. What's kind of the origin story of how you ended up in theater? I know some of it, but I even I have had the missing those those missing parts.
2: To yeah, it. yeah. Um. Well, I mean, the if we go back in time completely, then it's uh, it's the Troy Bolton story for High School Musical. Even though that's one of my uh, not one of my favorites as far as productions are concerned, but I was in high school. It was my junior year. It was down to play basketball or do a play, and I had to choose. And so. Uh, kind of chose the theater because I was chasing a girl, um, left that and found out that I could get a scholarship and my family didn't have a lot of money. And I thought, wow, I get up in front of somebody for a couple minutes and say some words and they will give me money. Okay. I'm in, um, I was a visual artist up to that point as well. And I thought I was going to pursue that if anything, um, and then I think I got to undergrad and, and ran into a mentor professor that just changed my thought process about what theater could be and helped me to merge my visual artistic side with uh, storytelling. And and I think, actually, I think uh, I saw a streetcar named Desire and went, yay, not everything has a happy ending, I'm in. Uh, uh, and yeah, I, I, th- I think that's my beginnings and then, uh, theater became like a sport to me in many ways. It became not competitive to the point that I wanted to win something, although I have entered competitions and, and, and won those competitions that I've entered or done well in those competitions. Um, I think it became competitive for me in that I wanted to gather as much information as I could so that I would know as much as I could could walking into uh, the arena. So I just read every bit of theory I could get my hands on and I attempted every directing opportunity that I thought I was really bad at so that I could get better at it. Uh, So eventually I would at least be able to hold a conversation about the art form and a conversation with artists in the space when they come from different backgrounds as far as training.
0: That's a rather holistic view. That's a, that's a really good holistic view of kind of, not only, I think that speaks to also, like, not To only me, Kyle voice, is you. always constantly on a quest for something new and pushing the boundaries of what theater means. He's done some interesting projects, like adapting The Tempest into a 45-minute version, or taking the story of Alexandria, and making it a rock concert. And while that is definitely a part of American theater and the development of it, Kyle doesn't think that he is part of mainstream theater, as much as he wants to be.
2: This is this is my take on theater, as I have in the last, uh, I'd say, 15, 20 years, maybe. Oh, 15 years. And that is, I have a, I have a difficult time not looking at the theater like I look at what's the difference between eagles and the cover band that covers the eagles Mm. one's an artist that's creating something the other is merely duplicating or doing their best to duplicate something and I think both have some kind of merit but I'm far more interested in the eagles so in terms of theater I keep asking myself the question am I regurgitating someone else's art which in a lot of forms is called plagiarism um Or am I making something new? Am I bringing something new to the conversation? And I think that's a big uh, spark or drive for me.
0: Kyle explained to me that there is this wider idea within American theater that you have to see a show in order to do it. That often university and high school teachers will go out to New York City or to a regional production of a show, take mental notes, and then try to translate it onto the stage with people who are not at the caliber that a professional stage would be at.
2: Uh, I saw a production of uh, uh, Fiddler on the Roof at Sundance, summer theater. Um, And there was a gentleman playing Tevye, who didn't do all the cliche shaking of the shoulders uh if i were a rich man um but his take on the character while not cliche at all uh was original and something i had never seen and uh i was able to approach him afterward and i said you are incredible and so refreshing why did you decide to take this different approach to it he said i've never seen it Okay, God bless.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there was a touring production of Joseph a couple of years ago where they cut the gimmicks. Like, there was no... For those of you who don't know... Joseph is kind of built on gimmicks. Like the whole show is kind of built on the fact that every song is different. Every song has a costume change. It, like that's the whole joke of the show. And I saw it was a touring production that I think a lot of people saw where they had cut that entirely. Like there wasn't the only joke that they kept was the Elvis joke that the Pharaoh is still Elvis because yeah. that fits with the song. And yeah. but but the the mega mix at the end they all came out in white. And they all had microphones, like they had like handhelds, and that's how they did the Mega Mix. And so I just—how did you feel about it? It, it completely changed my view because I, up to that point, I have done Joseph. I hate Joseph. It is one of <laughs> the worst shows that people can do, people be in. Um, I feel like um, for those of you who don't know, I went to high school in Utah. Kyle teaches in Utah. Um, everyone does Joseph. It's like yeah. a thing that everyone has done. Joseph. Everybody has seen Joseph at least seven times, and it was really refreshing. It was that thing that taught me, like, oh, I don't hate the show. I hate when people just see the thing and then do it over and over and over again. Yep. Kyle's thoughts on theater might sound radical at first, but he has a logical way in which he thinks that there have been multiple aspects that have contributed to America's lackadaisical approach to advancing and developing theater. And I think that that speaks to kind of the, one of the big things that I wanted to get your opinion on is you are very invested. I hate saying the word, and it was you that made me hate the word, is, is experimental theater. I hate, the, I hate that word because what does that even mean? Theater is all experimental. Exactly. So what a kind of, like, that, that new, the new age, new wave, kind of the things that, you know, Alex Timbers, Ivo Van Hove are doing, like, what makes that so important? And especially, like, now. And what draws you to it?
2: Now, you just opened a can of worms because I was thinking about this earlier today, this, this very idea. For some reason, those auteur directors bring their creative stamp to work. And it's a re-investigation and a re-looking at through a lens that is uniquely theirs that also is highly uh, infused. I mean, those are intelligent human beings and it's highly infused in craft. Um, for some reason, directing I'm trying to think of a good word for it, is thrown into this category. Well, it's it's funny, like you look at the Tony Awards and you see the award winners are these these really inventive creative directors. Well, that's who they all should be. And directors are the funniest group. And I don't know, maybe it it falls to other uh, art forms as well, but they're so, I know I've been this way. They blame audiences for their inability to do something new, interesting, and refreshing. Um, They assume that bringing, that creating a piece, or not creating, because they're not creating, that staging is the same thing as artistry. And when it's not very good, they often blame their audience. And they can't, directors can't take notes. They're so bad at it. Uh, I've been talking recently about how do we get together? Like you think of the beat poets, or you think of uh, uh, oh, the artists, uh, uh, Jackson Pollock, and uh, oh, I can't even think of the names right now, that group of artists in that period. They all hung out. They all gave each other notes. They were all brutal. They all told each other they sucked, but it was all in this spirit of, spirit of, we want this art form to be better. And we'll get a little bit of a spark when somebody creative comes in and does something interesting. Yeah. And I'm like, why are we doing that all the time? That's all we should allow.
0: Uh, yeah. Did I go way off topic on that one? Or- no, that was good. I like that note because I, I, it was, it's a really interesting take and kind of speaks to a wider thing. Is that like so? Here's the thing having seen, like Timbers, for example, like Alex Timbers, yeah. um, the most successful thing, everybody should go watch it. Oh, hello! Um, he was a director of that. He's also directed a ton of stuff. He directed Moulin Rouge this year, which is probably going to win the Tony for Best Musical. He was, he did Peter and the Star Catcher, he did Rocky, he did Bloody Blade Andrew Jackson, but he's yeah. had a really successful career off Broadway. Doing like the rubber bear, the uh, the rubber bridegroom, and doing um, *Here Lies Love*. Like a really, he's really intelligent and does really creative work. And I think having seen both his off Broadway and on Broadway work, I prefer when he does things for an off Broadway audience. When he just gets cut loose and said, "Great, just make what you want, create what you want." It's that when he moves to Broadway and does a *Beetlejuice* or you know, a Moulin Rouge that it becomes, oh, this is about money. And like, it's It's, really come down to what's going to make money. And that's why we see these revivals that are just kind of heartless. Like, I love The Music Man. It's one of my favorite golden age musicals. Yeah, yeah. I'm not excited that it's coming to Broadway. I'm going to see it if I can, but I'm not excited because I know that it's just going to be the movie on stage with Sutton Foster and Hugh Jackman. Like, it's going to be famous people. In it, doing the same thing we've seen it done six, seven times. Yes. Yeah. Unfortunately. And I think that that kind of is, I think at least that's what speaks to me about why, you know, this kind of experimental kind of downtown off-Broadway theater is so important. But something that we've talked about before is that Americans are not good at it. Or at least we're slow to it. To accepting it? To accepting
2: a new form of theater? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, I mean, I think we got to that point where we felt like we found our niche in the world, and that was musical theater. And then we just kind of stopped. And that's sad. And the rest of the world just kept driving forward and finding new forms and trying new things. And we just went,
0: cool. That's not to say that Kyle doesn't like musicals. In fact, he loves them. But the thing that he's most interested in, or at least one of the things he's most interested in, is reframing how we approach theater. What makes something truly theatric and sets us apart from other forms of entertainment, live or taped?
2: I'm trying to understand
1: Mm
2: -hmm. what's truly theatrical, if that makes sense. What sets us apart from film? Um, Costuming can be done better on film. they got to bigger budget um, uh, sets are always better. You don't slam a door in the wall, shakes on uh, in film. Um, so how do we engage in liminal space, having an, a live audience in that space and allow them to be participants um, in the storytelling, in their imaginative process? Um, I always tell students is, in terms of theater, I love musicals. I love puppetry. I love pantomime I love I don't care what it is theatrically if it's done well I'm all in I don't care what it is um and I think that I've I think that's where I falter is I'm not doing as well as I want and I don't have a community to drive me mm. and I think we all need that as artists I mean it's that thing you go through when you're in college and you're with your buddies you know like Oh, when we get out of here, we're going to get a theater and we're going to do this and this and this. And everybody's driving each other or really good universities where they've got a couple of really great professors that are driving the other professor because it's like, well, I don't want him to get all the attention or her to get all the attention. How do I produce such great work? that? And it's a really interesting competitive dynamic that I miss that. I miss that. And I, and, and I long for that in some form.
0: That right there is what Kyle wants theater to be. He wants to be challenged. He wants to be pushed in becoming a better artist and director, and in doing so, hopefully push theater further beyond its boundaries. He likes to approach shows by who he gets to collaborate with, rather than what show they're going to do. Something that he and I actually connected about. Somebody like Diane Paulus is so good. Is yeah. that Diane Paulus does such amazing work and does such different work, like yes. from show to show. I I always make the joke that Diane Paulus is the Steven Spielberg of theater because. Oh. It can be a you know, one minute it can be this big, huge Neo circus version of Pippin and then the next minute it's this tiny production with a live band on stage of about a girl who makes pies. Like you can you can or and then it goes into hair, this great revival of this of the end of the golden age musical. Like it she is so talented in the in the fact that she can take so many different styles and so many different pieces of of of, uh, of theater and make them all amazing. And it all comes from her, how she approaches her work. She approaches it by saying, "How I have a concept. How do I get here? Who do I have to hire? Who do I work with? How do we, who's the team that I'm on to develop this piece of work? How do we get there? And I think that that's really inspiring to see.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and, and that's not to discourage, you know, people who do do very similar work consistently. Like Alex Timbers is another example, is that he does consistently conceptual, kind of puts it in a, an, in a weird space, involves the audience, tells stories very... He does them very specific way. And it's equally as interesting and good to watch. And I think that both of them, though, do the same thing, just wildly different. They both understand the process in which they have to get to their end product, One just happens to have found one that they like and the other enjoys doing more and more and more different things.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting as you were speaking, if you were to ask me what production you would like to do, Kyle, what's the next production you'd like to do? That's far less interesting a question to me than, and you kind of hit on this, what's the team I'd like to work with? Absolutely. Now that's, that's opening doors.
0: Yeah, I think that that's a really, yes, I I agree because, and that's kind of the fun part where theater becomes so collaborative, is who am I working with? Who's in the room? Who am I getting to create something with? In essence, that's what Kyle loves, is collaboration and the building of theater, challenging and pushing boundaries. But he also recognizes where the faults lie and why that's very hard for it to become commercially successful in America. Because American theater is star-driven and also monetarily driven. However, Kyle hopes that in the future, we'll stop caring about that sort of stuff and really start cultivating a team that we want to work with that'll push us to become better artists.
2: If I'm an artist, what am I bringing different Mm. Or am I just a regurgitator in somebody else's puppet? And if that's the case, then just go through and learn the steps and learn all the information and learn how to sing and learn how to dance and go be somebody's puppet. God bless. I know there are people who want to do that. I find it personally offensive, but some people make a living doing it.
0: As cynical as that may sound, he hopes that in the future, we're all going to be better artists who are not afraid to push each other and challenge each other to make sure that our art form doesn't die. This episode was recorded, produced, reported on, and edited by myself, Jacob Alloy, for Slice of Americana. My thanks to Kyle Lewis and Dr. Jeff Turner for their contributions to this episode. I cannot say thank you enough. If you liked this episode, please be sure to go follow us on Instagram at Slice of Americana with no underscores, no dashes, no nothing. If you would like to go see more of our stuff, please be sure to subscribe to us here on whatever podcast platform you are listening on as well as on our youtube channel slice of americana pretty self-explanatory no thank you so much once again and i hope to see you back here real soon until then happy trails